Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through his word. Well, hello again. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 as we discuss great expectations. This is part five in our series entitled A Call to Joy. Mark Twain once wrote that few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Perhaps the most annoying thing about a good example is its inability to accomplish the same achievement in our own lives. Admiration for a great person can inspire us, but it can't empower us. Not unless that person can somehow crawl inside our skin and endow us with his talents. It takes more than an example on the outside. It takes power on the inside. But how do we possibly live up to the example of Christ's humility that we discussed our last time out? Is it presumptuous to even try? Well, the problem is really not that difficult. Paul isn't suggesting we do the impossible, but he is providing us with a divine pattern for humble hearts and submissive minds and the power to accomplish what God is directing us to do, what God is expecting us to do. You see, the key to living according to God's purposes for us isn't imitation so much as it is incarnation. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He enables us to meet great expectations. Warren Wiersbe, who has a wonderful commentary on the book of Philippians, wrote, The Christian life is not a series of ups and downs. It is rather a process of ins and outs. God works in, and we work out. Now, let me give you an overview of the passage we're going to look at. Here in verses 12 through 18, when Paul tells the Philippian Christians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling as they trust God to work in them for his goodwill and purpose, he means that they are to do everything without complaining so that they can be pure children of God in the midst of a depraved generation and therefore live lives that shine. Or, to put it more succinctly, faithfully live your life so you can faithfully shine your light. That's the big idea behind this week's study. You see, the Christian life is all about purpose, power, and promise. What do I mean by that? Well, let's unpack those together. You see, in verses 12 through 18, Paul gives us three things to be mindful of. The first is, number one, a purpose to achieve. There is a purpose to achieve. Look at verse 12. Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we look at verses 12, 14, and 15, there's there's several things going on here I want you to notice. First of all, the exhortation and the Christian's work. Paul gives them a pat on the back here, an attaboy in verse 12. Hey, just keep doing what you've always done as you work out your faith. 
But don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here when he tells them to work out your own salvation. When he said work out your salvation, he meant put it to work. Paul had great expectations for the Philippian believers then, and God has great expectations for us today. You see, just like that weightlifter who goes to the gym to work out his body, we are to work out God's plan for us. So verse 12 isn't suggesting we earn our salvation. I mean, remember who Paul's writing to. The people in the Philippian church were already Christians. In fact, he addresses them as saints in chapter 1, verse 1. In other words, they had already trusted in Christ for forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. Now, those words work out from, comes from a Greek verb that means to work to the finish or to, to work to full completion, such as working out a problem in mathematics. It's a term that in Paul's day was used for uh, working a mine, that is, getting, getting out of the mine every ounce of ore possible, or working a field to get the greatest harvest possible. But what is God's expectation for this, this holy workout? Well, the purpose God wants us to achieve is very simply Christ-likeness, to be conformed to the image of his Son, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.29. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Yes, there are problems, struggles, obstacles in life, but God will help us work them out too. Church, just like a mine or a field, your lives have tremendous potential, and God wants to help you fulfill that potential to work out his plan for your lives. When my son Luke was only 13, he began to express an interest in vocational ministry. Now, to his credit, he wanted to make sure it was the Lord's calling and not just some romantic notion of being the third generation of Chaffins in pastoral ministry. When he was 16, Luke was licensed to the gospel ministry. And he later went off to school at Wayland Baptist University, but it wasn't long before he began to express some hesitation. He told me, Dad, I, I want to serve the church, but I don't think I meant to do that as a pastor. In fact, he felt a very strong pull towards writing. I assured him that God could use his talents in other ways and that the world needs more Christians in the academy or in the publishing world and, and beyond. But here's the advice I would give Luke or give your children or give you don't base your decision solely on what other people think you should do. Seek God's will. Get into his word. Then listen to what God's Holy Spirit is leading you to do. You see, contrary to popular opinion, the happiest place on earth is not Disneyland. It's right smack dab in the center of God's will. So be obedient to God's calling on your life. Let him fulfill his purpose in and through you. And there you will find fullness of joy. Well, Luke is still working to discern exactly what God's plan is for him, but he decided that he was going to work out his own salvation, his own Christian life, and not what I or his granddad or his college professors wanted him to do. He's not going to try to be his dad or his granddad. And likewise, we are not to be cheap imitations of other people, especially those that we deem as super Christians. 
We are to simply follow what we see of Christ in their lives. Just like Paul told the believers at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. In other words, don't imitate the Paul in me, imitate the Christ in me. Do you know, even the most godly of Christians are still fallible and may ultimately disappoint you, but Jesus Christ will never let you down. So the encouragement Paul gives us is to work out your own salvation. That's the exhortation in the Christian's work. But I also want you to notice something else. I want you to notice the expectation of the Christian's walk. You may recall in Ephesians 2.10, Paul said that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You see, one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is the knowledge that God not only has a plan for our lives, but that he will help us to work it out for his glory. God has a plan just for you, believer. But his plan for each of us also carries some common components, expectations that Jesus has for every believer. Now, what are those? Well, let's look at a couple of them in verses 14 and 15. First is to walk in obedience to God. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 14. To do everything without grumbling and arguing. Everything, he says, without grumbling and arguing. Lord, save us from grumblers. That word in the Greek means to voice displeasure. Just think how delightful the body of Christ would be if we'd simply obey the command to never voice displeasure. No more angry rants on Facebook. No ugly, unsolicited emails from people who think they know how to fix everything in the church to their liking, of course. No more anonymous letters from church members who'd rather bask in their own displeasure than to take the ultimate pleasure in the love of God. Because in that relationship, there's joy. Lord, save us from people who aren't happy unless they're unhappy about something. If only we, as Christ followers, would just grow up, stop arguing, and start working together. Walk in obedience to God and start doing everything without grumbling and arguing. Why? Well, we see one reason, the first part of this, verse 15, so that we can walk in opposition to the world, so that we can walk pure and blameless. Verse 15, uh, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless and a crooked and perverted generation. Now, what Paul is showing us is a contrast between the way believers ought to live and the way the world does live. Folks, we live in a sin-cursed world. Society around us is twisted and distorted. You see, to them, wrong is right, right is wrong. There's no absolute standard of truth except what we make for ourselves. But the Christian who measures his or her life by the standard of God's word, which is truth, can stand firm and walk straight in this world. While the world has nothing lasting to offer, the Christian holds out the word of life, the eternal hope of salvation through faith in Christ. To put it more simply, as we allow God to achieve his purposes for our lives, 
we stand an even greater contrast to the world. We give a more powerful testimony of the love of God. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus lived a perfect life in an imperfect world. And when we start to walk in humility and obedience to God, well, we start to become more like Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we withdraw from the world. We don't retreat into some sort of sanctified, solitary confinement. We are in the world, but not of it. Our world is a very dark place right now. But understand this, church. The darker it is, the brighter we shine. And that is what we'll call the expectation of the Christian's witness. Look at the end of verse 15. Among whom you shine like stars in the world. The Christian is to shine, Paul says. And Jesus said it too. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Shine, church. That's the expectation of your witness. So, in verses 12, 14, and 15, we saw that there's, number one, a powerful purpose to achieve. There's a workout to do. But here's a question. What or whom enables us to do that? Well, look at verse 13, because there's also, number two, a power to receive. Paul said in verse 13, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, earlier, we discussed the exhortation in the Christian's walk and the expectation of the Christian's walk and his witness. But here in verse 13, we see something else. We see the enablement of the Christian's work. I mean, do do you see what Paul is putting down here? Paul's teaching us that God must work in in us before he can work through us. And this principle is seen at work throughout the Bible in the lives of people like Joseph and Moses and David and the apostles and others. God had a special purpose for each one to fulfill, and each person was unique and not an imitation of somebody else. Think about this. How many years did Joseph languish in Egyptian captivity before he caught Pharaoh's attention and rose to become second in command in all of Egypt? And how many of Joseph's awful experiences did God in his sovereignty use to shape Joseph for his specific purposes? The deeds that were perpetrated against him by his brothers, they meant for evil, but Joseph said in Genesis 15-20 that God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God was working in him to work through him. God spent 40 years to bring Moses to the place where he could use him to lead the people of Israel. As Moses tended sheep during those 40 years, God was working in him so that one day he might work through him 
to deliver his people from slavery. You see, God can accomplish his work with or without us, but he prefers to do it with us. So God's really more interested in the workman than in the work. Why? Well, because if the workman is what he ought to be, the work will be what it ought to be. And when you surrender to the power of God within you, there is joy. Then obedience becomes delightful, not drudgery. The power that works in us is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 13 says, God works in us according to his good purpose. Now, the Greek word there for work, it means energized. That same Holy Spirit that energized Christ during his earthly ministry empowers us today. But how is that power activated? What tools does God use by his Spirit to work in our lives? Well, let me take a few minutes to discuss three of them. The first and the most obvious is Scripture, the Word of God. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, When you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. You see, God's supernatural energy is released in our lives through his inspired word. And as such, we have a responsibility to appreciate the word. The Bible is unique. It is inspired, authoritative, and infallible. And if we don't appreciate the word, well, then God's power won't energize our lives. But we not only appreciate it, we must also assimilate the word. We receive it. This means so much more than just listening to it or even reading and studying it. We we ingest it into our soul. We let it fill us up. We welcome it and make it a part of us. But we not only assimilate the word, we must also apply the word because it only works in those who actually obey it. True confession time. You want to know what the most frustrating thing on earth is for a pastor? To proclaim God's work week after week after week, only to see people hear it yet refuse to obey it. We must appreciate God's word, assimilate God's word, and apply God's word. And when we do, we're going to find that his commandments are actually enablements. So the first tool is scripture. Second tool the Holy Spirit uses is supplication. Supplication. It's just a fancy $10 preacher word for prayer. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible is Ephesians 3.20. It says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. That power is the power of God's Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is closely related to the practice of prayer in our lives. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us, as Paul said in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Book of Acts 
says that prayer is a divinely ordained source of spiritual power. You see that in Acts 1.14, 4.23, also verse 31, and also uh, Acts chapter 12, verses 5 and 12. But unless a Christian takes time for prayer, God won't work in him or through him. Read your Bible. Study church history. You'll find that the people God used were people who prayed. That's one of the Holy Spirit's tools. Now, the Holy Spirit's third tool is struggle. Wait, what? Struggle? Are you serious? Yep, you heard me right. Struggle. See, the Spirit of God works in a special way in the lives of those who suffer for the glory of Christ. Peter addressed that in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. You see, the trials we endure have a way of burning away all of the impurities in our lives, of of purifying and empowering the believer to serve Christ. And if anyone could testify to that reality, it, it was Paul you know, the the guy who was writing this letter from prison. One of the most basic philosophies of strength training is that muscles must be pushed beyond their limits if any strength and muscle growth is to be gained. But with continued conditioning and growth, the strength threshold is raised, which means that further muscle growth requires even greater efforts. In essence, The stronger a person gets, the harder he must work to grow stronger. Now, some people refer to this as the overload principle. But here's the thing. God also uses the overload principle in testing our faith, building endurance, and maturing us. As we work out our salvation, he deliberately allows us to go through a shipwreck once in a while in our lives, to endure some struggle, some trials, to to help us gain strength while the Holy Spirit molds us into the image of Jesus. So, Scripture, supplication, struggle, the Word of God, prayer, and trials are three specific tools that God's Holy Spirit employs in our lives. And as the Christian reads the Word and prays, He becomes more like Christ, and the more he becomes like Christ, the more the unsaved world opposes him. But the more the world opposes him, the more the believer is driven back to the Word and to prayer. And so it's a cycle. All three tools work together in a continual spiral to provide the spiritual power that we need to glorify Christ. Believers, if we're going to have a mind that's submitted to God and the joy that goes with it, then we need to recognize that there is a purpose to achieve. That's God's plan for our Christ-likeness. There is a power to receive, the Holy Spirit's enablement. And here's the third one, number three, There is a promise to believe, a promise to believe. So how does the Christian accomplish what God expects, the work that he wants us to do? Well, yes, the power of the Holy Spirit, as we just talked about, but but something else. You see, Christians depend on God's word. 
We work out our salvation through the promise and power of God's word. Verse 16, Paul says, by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. And that makes sense. I mean, after all, the scripture is one of those tools of the Holy Spirit we discussed just a moment ago. But if you hold firm to the word, Paul says, then the promise holds true that none of this was in vain. But in verses 17 and 18, I want you to notice something else about Paul and his friends in the church at Philippi. There was a greater promise to believe as Christians dispense God's joy. Now, in in verses 17 and 18, Paul describes himself as a drink offering. Now, that's interesting. It's a reference to an Old Testament ritual, which was part of the observance of the Day of Atonement. According to the Levitical law, when a worshiper's burnt offering was consumed by fire, the worshiper would often pour a drink offering of wine on it. And that wine poured on burning coals created a sweet aroma. Of course, the symbolism points us forward from Leviticus to the Gospels to the Lord Jesus pouring out his life, dying for us. And here, Paul is declaring that his very life is an offering that has been completely poured out in sweet service to the Lord. But for Paul, even though there's been hardship, sacrifice, even suffering, there is still joy. And that's the promise, joy. Joy that can only come from humbly submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. But you see, that joy that we're promised is two-faceted. There is a joy to come. In verse 16, Paul refers to the day of Christ. Now, we talked about that in part one of this series. The day of Christ is a day in which all believers must stand before the Lord and give an account of their deeds. It's also known as the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment examines our works to determine whether they're worthy of reward in heaven. So Paul is anticipating a joyful reward in the future for his faithfulness. But Paul also speaks of joy right now. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Verse 18, in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, you think that the words sorrow or suffering might follow Paul's comments about being a drink offering, but you see, not even imprisonment could rob Paul of his joy, and nothing should be able to rob ours either. Christian, it should be written all over your face. An elementary school girl once told her principal that she believed that he, the principal, went to heaven every night because he was so happy every day. And from that, the principal crafted an excellent metaphor to describe a Christian's joy. He said, joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. That's beautiful and poignant. In fact, uh, because of that, I'm going to read it again. Joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Christian, you want to know joy? 
then you must believe that our king's promises are true and that they're going to work for us the same way they worked for Paul. And if you do, you'll find that life isn't a series of disappointing ups and downs. Rather, it is a succession of delightful ins and outs. God works in, we work out. The example comes from Christ, God the Son. The energy comes from God the Spirit. But the end result is unspeakable joy, and that comes from God the Father. Joy comes when you faithfully live your life so you can faithfully shine your light. That's the big idea today. So what are some ways that we can live out Paul's instruction? Ways that we can learn to shine our light. How do we manage those great expectations that God has for us? Well, I'm going to give you four action steps, and really they're very simple, fundamental. This is basic Christianity 101 type stuff here. But here you go. First of all, seek the heart of God. As we work out our salvation, we're partnering with God. God is always at work in and through us. So keep your heart open and obedient to his plan for you. After you seek the heart of God, study the word of God. Because it's through his word that he teaches us how to live, how to work out your salvation. So seek the heart of God, study the word of God. Here's the third one. Surrender to the spirit of God. See, it's the Holy Spirit who provides the power and the conviction and the direction for our lives. Remember, it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And then the fourth one we'll call schooling in the life of God. You want to work out the plan God has for your life? Well, you see, obedience is not just about trying. It's about training. Just trying isn't enough. Training, on the other hand, requires discipline. To truly live a Christ-like life, we have to order our lives around those activities and disciplines and practices that were modeled by Christ. Things like prayer, studying the scripture, corporate worship, service, stewardship, submission, forgiveness. If we'll do those things, then we're much, much better equipped to enjoy the fulfillment of God's promise of joy in Christ Jesus. But the first step towards real, lasting joy is entering into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And how is that accomplished? By faith. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. You see, when you choose to acknowledge your need as a sinner for God and then trust in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross when he died for you, God will grant you his free gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. You're basically telling him, God, I know I'm a sinner and I repent. I turn away from that way of living. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose from the dead to prove his love for me. And so I'm asking you, please come into my heart 
and save me. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.